0: Regenerative Medicine Today. This is Leah Kaufman.
1: And I'm John Murphy. Today you'll hear Leah's interview with Dr. Michael Chancellor, the Director of Neurourology and Female Urology Programs at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center.
0: Dr. Chancellor and his colleagues are conducting clinical trials of a new treatment for stress urinary incontinence that uses a patient's own stem cells cultured from a bit of leg muscle. In spring 2006, Dr. Chancellor reported that his technique is safe and that it improves patients' quality of life.
1: Let's hear from Dr. Chancellor now.
0: We're joined today by Dr. Michael Chancellor. He's a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's got a pretty interesting approach to an age-old problem. So, Dr. Chancellor, can you describe uh, the problem that you're working to solve?
2: Yeah, I'm a urologist, and I deal with pee-pee problems. And through the years, I see a lot of women and men that can't control their urine. I'll treat them with medicine, exercise, you know, the classic Kegel exercise, and surgery. And over the last 10, 15 years, I realize a lot of the stuff we do can only control the problem. And the thought of, if you have a weak sphincter, which is a muscle, and you leak urine, can we actually go ahead and rebuild your valve, your muscle sphincter, and therefore cure the problem. That's something I th- was thinking of in the early 90s and pursue that dream, and sort of taking a clinical problem. I'm a physician scientist. I'm not as smart as the PhDs, but to be it's sort of neat perspective to see a problem that your patient tell you. You realize the current treatment only goes so far, and I'm at need finding the opportunity to work with world-class scientists and then to take something that's benchtop research, high tech, such as tissue engineering, stem cell, and then to apply that and fix a problem that affects millions and millions of Americans.
0: So tell me more, let's get a little more in depth there. Um, The urethra is, ureter, I'm not sure I have my terms right, Mm -hmm. is a muscle, is it not? Or at least the, the the opening of it is controlled by muscle. So... Is that the part you're working to fix, and how are you doing that?
2: Exactly. So the lower urinary tract, it has two parts. One is the reservoir, our bladder. It holds our urine. None of us wants to, like, notice, feel like feel our bladder, except when we have to go. And six, eight times a day, we'd go to the bathroom. So our bladder holds the urine, and below the v- bladder, much like a valve in your bathroom, there is a, a natural valve. The valve we have is make a, made of muscle which is around the urethra, which is the tube whereby the urine comes out. It's a small muscle, as big as your ring, and yet it is on 24-7. When you're sleeping, when you're having sex, whatever, you don't want your faucet to open up by accident. And only when you go to the bathroom do you say, okay, time to open up the valve, the sphincter relaxes, and we empty to completion. So it's a combination of a tank, the bladder, and the urethra with the valve that t- keeps our bladder turned off and then turn on, but only when we're in the bathroom.
0: So we have, um, our nervous system can control this system to an extent, but obviously something goes wrong in some people, and that valve doesn't work properly all the time.
2: Yes, and it's probably because of aging. We, we're upright. Animal that's four-legged really don't leak urine, except very rarely. Because there's not
0: a lot of downward pressure. Exactly. Okay.
2: Gravity works against us. I see. So, and in women, especially after menopause, hysterectomy, childbirth, it's it's much more common. And men get the controlled leakage sphincter muscle problem after they have prostate surgery. So the estimation is that literally 17-plus plus million, that's in millions of American will have bladder control leakage problem. And as you can imagine with the aging population, especially in Western Pennsylvania, it's only gonna get worse. I and mean, I just challenge you, you think about if you go to the Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, what takes up the most size, the biggest aisle space in the entire Rite Aid drugstore is adult diapers. Mm-hmm. It's 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 filling up our landfill with adult diapers.
0: And the commercials for those products it seemed to indicate that that will solve the the quality of life problem. You put on this great undergarment and yeah. you can go back to riding a bike and and jogging and whatnot. But I bet it doesn't. It's, I bet I bet there's still an issue with uh, embarrassment and you yeah,
2: know. Yeah, it's it's stinky.
0: Yeah.
2: It's and in the summertime you're you, you get a diaper rash to be in diapers. We all I mean we've all seen babies. Yeah. And if you don't change the diaper, it's not pretty down there. And now if you're 75, 85, you have really thin skin, it's only worse. Plus, sometimes the leakage is so bad, it soaks around it. Mm -hmm. So most people put up with the diapers, but they're very afraid to do things. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to go to a show because they can't get up in the middle of the show, so they sit at the aisle seat all the way in the back. They're afraid to go on an airplane ride because we all know who goes to the bathroom on an airplane. And... The commercial is there because it's like a four billion dollar industry. It's good business. It's a dollar two per diaper, and you go through two to six diapers a day. But it really is one of the. It's big business, and it's one of the biggest contribution to landfill.
0: Wow, now you mentioned that you um, were treating a lot of people with um, things that control the problem. So medications is one approach. Um, we've heard of collagen. Yes. To sort of help that muscle get more, I guess, bulk to it. Mm-hmm. How is what you're doing different?
2: Yeah, so the non invasive technique would be pill or the exercise. But it can help, but not everybody can do the exercise, can tolerate pill, and they don't help everybody. Mm-hmm. So the gold standard when you see a urologist or a gynecologist, you do a surgery on it. And the surgery is really two type. One is something called a sling what you essentially do is you take a piece of ribbon, and it it looks about the size of a ribbon, and you put it at the base of the bladder. So you sort of tighten it up. So when she coughs, instead of gapping open and urine leaking out, the little tape would hold it back. Mm -hmm. It's it's reasonably effective, but it's still a surgery. It doesn't fix the problem. It sort of blocks it from coming out.
0: And what is that sling made of? Is it an artificial material, or is it
2: traditionally it's made of it's like a piece of plastic tape Mm -hmm. and some people are not if it gets infected if there's erosion it has to come out and there's trend toward tissue engineering to try to make a biological tape that's more compatible and then that would be there when you need it but when the problem is fixed your body takes over it would disappear be resolved
0: so we can look forward to hearing more about that you yes. down
2: the road a little bit. Yeah, plus okay. with some of the stem cell we're doing, we're actually in the lab here at McGowan. We're seeding these scaffold to sort of make a three-dimensional muscle to literally make a new sphincter using a scaffold.
0: Okay.
2: But the second concept, what you were mentioning, it was the collagen. Uh, and that's really just what you said. It's like the consistency of toothpaste. You use a small needle, and you inject it in the weak urethra to bulk it up. It's like if the pipe is faucet is busted the collagen would be like going in there and injection would be like putting the washer back in there. It's it's the same material that that the cosmetic surgeon uses in actresses and supermodels lips. And if, uh, if you know I treat a lot of little ladies and if they don't get it I'll just say okay this is what collagen is. It takes 5 minutes I'll use a needle and I'll make your urethra look like Angelina Jolene's
0: lips. (laughs) Everybody gets that one. Yeah.
2: And sometimes their husband really wants that.
0: (laughs) But there are issues with collagen, I understand. Why doesn't that always work?
2: And that's how I first looked for stem cell, is the concept is very attractive. Okay, the urethra sphincter is weak like a faucet. The washer is damaged. Why not just go in there and, and bulk it up there's no cutting, it's five minutes, and you're better immediately, and there's no recovery. But the problem with collagen is we, we don't have a good material, and still not natural. Collagens really uh, process cow high, mm-hmm. and it, it's absorbed, it's biologic, so it wears out. That's why the actresses really gets it done once or twice a year. Wow. So I, t- I tend to look at that, and it's just sometimes I believe that you know Julia Roberts' lips sometimes is fuller than others. Yeah, because she hasn't. It's time for her redone. It's almost like the Botox. It doesn't last forever. Plus, it's still not natural. Mm-hmm. It's some people are allergic to to cowhide, and with mad cow disease in the future, we just never know. So, if it's possible, it's certainly not the most desirable material using putting cowhide in your lips or in your urethra. Mm-hmm. But the concept bulking is beautiful. The technique is easy, but the substance is is not. We don't. We're far. We're not there yet. Right. And thereby, well, can we find a stem cell not only to put it in there that's safe, but then it would just rebuild the muscle? And you just do it once, and the problem's fixed.
0: And now, uh, just in case that seemed like a bit of a, a day crescendo to our listeners, Dr. Chancellor just said that rather than use collagen to bulk up the opening um, to the urethra, that little ring of muscle, he is using stem cells. Now, where do these stem cells come from?
2: Yes. So I came to the University of Pittsburgh about 10 years ago knowing that, that I want to get into tissue engineering. That was just sort of the inflection point for various people across, not only here at Pitt, but across the country. And there's lots of stem cell. In fact, it's in the news almost every other day. And for two reasons, I was not comfortable with the embryonic, the placental, fetal stuff. I was just not comfortable with it on the just the ethical issue. Uh, but also the plasticity issue that some stem cell can do so much that it might be difficult to control since I want to fix the damaged muscle I want to keep it simple and safe so our technique right from day one is if Mrs. Jones leak can I use a small needle biopsy from her leg and then find her stem cell, grow it out to an adequate number and then injected back into Mrs. Jones. So our muscle stem cell is from the owner himself or herself.
0: So the other problem I can see beyond the ethical issues with using stem cells from embryonic or other sources is that they're very hard to get. Yes. So this is not, I mean, it might be fine for research purposes, but as a, as a viable, marketable product, how in the world would you get enough embryonic or or amniotic or what have you stem cells for a common treatment, whereas if I'm walking around with my own bank of viable stem cells all the time, and I'm making new ones, and I know that I'm not going to reject them, and that's a pretty good deal, right? Yeah. I've and got my own bank of uh, reusable sort of tissues for various repair purposes. <laughs>
2: yes, and most of our as we age, most of our injury that we need build up is not to uh, grow a new liver or pancreas. It's for when there's uh, skeletal damage weak muscle, weak ligament and weak tendon and muscle source we only ask to try to go down to these to repair muscle, ligament or bone and cartilage and not try to be recreate life with a with an embryo whereby you have to add so many ingredients to make it become one thing or another, when a muscle to make another muscle better be it the urinary tract or for a damaged heart we're not we're close we can get it we can get to the patient Is a trial much quicker, and we don't have to add potentially many ingredients that each in itself, everything you add, do something to it, has an additional risk also.
0: I see. So tell me about the logistics of this treatment. A patient comes to you, and and let's make clear: are you in clinical trials now? Yes. So we can't. A patient cannot yet call your office and ask for this treatment, but they may be eligible to participate. In a trial, right, maybe yes, yeah, so
2: okay. we started basic research in ninety seven ninety eight mm-hmm. so in two two years ago, we asked at the same time the fda and the Canadian FDA to do the clinical trial, and this is two years ago, and as of today, right now, the Canadian trial the first trial is already completed great. Uh, seven patients has completed the trial. Three patients has it done twice, and there's been no safety issue whatsoever, and a couple of the patient had significant improvement. Okay. So Canada start and U.S. start at the same time, but our FDA is so tedious and, and careful mm-hmm. that we actually just got approved by the FDA to start the trial here in the, in, in the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center.
0: How soon might you start that trial?
2: Well, we cleared the FDA hurdle. Now okay. we just have to clear the university hurdle. I see. But as soon as that's clear, we are ready to go. And actually, we have you know a waiting list of people that call up email from all over. I'll bet. Canada's already into its second multi-center trials. Where in Toronto and Calgary. They already started their second trial already.
0: So your first trial was safety to make sure that no harm was being Everybody, done. Everybody,
2: that's that's for just about everything.
0: Okay, and the second trial is where they will they take it as, in Canada. Will it go a step further? So you're checking dose levels. Maybe more cells are better.
2: Exactly. Okay. So both the Canada multi-center trial and the trial we'll be doing in Pittsburgh, we're going to find out. Hey, is it work or not? And what's the right what's the right number of cell? So say the one here in Pittsburgh will be start. will be recruiting up to forty-eight. Uh, people that leaks the first group first cluster of five would receive two million cells and then if that's safe we'll start moving up so the dose range would be from two million up to a hundred and twenty million cells. Oh wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. How do how do we get these cells from our participants?
2: Uh, they you come in just in any office and it's in the lateral thigh it's like a needle And I've done enough biopsy, and I've been up to Toronto a number of times. Most people say it's about the same intensity as seeing a dentist and getting a cavity. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel the needle numbing it up, and you feel like there's moving around, but that's it. Yes, there's going to be a little butterfly tape on your leg. The the incision is just a needle, nick. There's no stitches or anything. Your leg's going to be sore for a day or so. Mm -hmm. And so just say, for example, in Canada... We started the trial you know two two and a half years ago. this was after September eleventh so we were going, "Oh my gosh, why do we pick Canada? What if it, you know the u s government doesn't let us cross the border um So we had to work out the logistics so we went up to I flew up to Toronto. The doctor up there at the University of Toronto I showed her how to do it, and she did the biopsy and we put it on dry ice, kept our fingers crossed, and actually made it across the border with proper inspection and all that. It arrived here in Pittsburgh, where in the Salomic building, there's a, a GMP facility, the cells were isolated, and in three weeks' time, expanded out to 20 million cell, that was for the first trial, mm-hmm. and then put it on dry ice, shipped it back, had the proper custom paper, and then I remember flying back out there, and you get this little package of frozen pallet cell, and, and uh, Dr. Carr injected back into her patient right in her office.
0: Well, what happens in the lab to um, expand that cell population? Are you adding growth factors? Are you purifying the cell population as you grow them out?
2: A lot of people are doing stem cell research, and we're not alone. Our our deliberate technique is to get rid of as many ingredients and steps as possible to avoid contamination, additional risk, so we isolate. When the isolation, sometimes like you're straining or panning for gold, we're getting rid of the unwanted cell in just using a pre-plating technique, isolating the cell. And we, and once we find it, they grow much better and faster. We're using very straightforward growth media to expand them out from up to twenty million, and that just literally takes no more than three weeks. Mm-hmm. So we're not adding chemicals or hormones to make them do anything. So when the cell gets to back to Toronto, there's there's no extraneous ingredients or preservative or chemical in there.
0: Okay, that's good to know. So a patient revisits her doctor after three weeks or so and has this injection and I imagine there's a bit of discomfort as you described. Um, and then what happens?
2: Well, then you hurry up and wait.
0: It's like <laughs>
2: getting pregnant. yeah, uh, and there lies the difference with the collagen is that if you bulk up your urethra, you're dry from the first day.
0: yeah,
2: uh, but then the problem with collagen is after a month, you know it wears off with the stem cell injection, since it's not bulk, but you're really replenishing, rebuilding the muscle in almost every patient is nothing happens for about a month. And then you begin to say, Oh my gosh, I, I think I'm having more control. Mm-hmm. And then it gets better and better. So it takes about between one and three months for the cells to become incorporated in the area to pick up blood supply, to pick up nerve ending, and hopefully become a better muscle. It's like mm-hmm. if you're working out, you're running, you know, you're not gonna be good. It takes a couple of weeks to a month or three before you say, you know, I'm clearly that muscle is much better.
0: Do you? Um, I'm wondering about a combination approach. Um, would it be possible to help train those new cells by telling patients to do their Kegel exercises, um, so that the the regrowing um, new muscle tissue is sort of getting its workout, its training. And I'm also wondering, would it be possible to combine a stem cell treatment with a scaffold, so that there is added bulk for a duration of time that goes away as the muscle tissue is regenerating so that the new muscle tissue replaces the scaffold. Yeah, I think, I
2: think both in that when we take out the prostate men with cancer, their biggest worry is about they lose control. So we teach them the Kegel exercise before they have the surgery. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, their recovery is quicker. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. You get yourself in the best shape possible to help whatever the doctor's treatment is to recover. And in men with prostate cancer surgery, a lot of time we tell them to start the Viagra before the surgery and stick with it even though they're not thinking of having sex. And in those patients, six months later, their continence is better and mm-hmm. their, their erection is better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a very logical step since we're rebuilding your muscle why not exercise it? Mm-hmm. So, and then the second question, I think it's yes. Right now, the FDA is so difficult. We just want to give them one thing: we're adding a person's own stem cell back. But I think the future of using scaffold, be it a gel form, mm-hmm. where we can put it where we want to, or as a ribbon, or if it's seated, it become it can becomes almost a three dimensional muscle that we can put in a wrap around the urethra or somewhere else, I think you can control the muscle with the scaffolding technique. I do believe that.
0: We're hearing a lot, we have in this podcast series, heard a lot about uh, new generations of scaffolds that, I guess, the, you know, the original scaffolds were sort of these sheets of of acellular material. Um, and we've been hearing a lot about new formulations. They're powders, they're beads, they're, you know, lots of things that can be formed into three-dimensional rather than flat two-dimensional shapes and so I I was just sort of thinking ahead Um, but while I'm thinking ahead why don't you tell me about other next steps for this work
2: well the first step and I think that's I'm not a PhD so I was trained as an MD sort of walk work backward into the lab because of a clinical problem that my success and where I can contribute and work with other is to bring it back to the bedside if I can, as opposed to the PhD, can take something from research and put it back in the patient with approval and all that stuff, obviously. So um, I like to do keep things simple and first get the US trial underway. So a woman who leaks, will can have her own stem cell. First prove it's safe, mm-hmm. then let's prove if we can make it work. And then collaborate with the various science to make the cell better find out the right number to work with the scaffold to growth factor to see how we can make it more better and then therefore if you want you can make it into a sheet then can you make can you start doing orthopedics repair Mm -hmm. but the first step first where i can uh i can contribute the most is just get it into the clinical trial because the success at pittsburgh will mean other people will have more chance of success be at St. Louis mm-hmm. or be at Los Angeles because the FDA needs to have their, their level of concern lower. Somebody do it, it's safe, and it'll be much easier for the next 10 groups to come to the come to the plate.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks who are, um, potential patients who are watching this work closely. Yes. So, um, Is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to also talk about?
2: Uh, it's a, just a very exciting area and... There's, like everything in life, there's no black or white. There's stem cell. It has multitude of issues, but not like you say earlier. Not st- all stem cells are alike, mm-hmm. and not all scientists have the same opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, just I follow these various stories, what's going on in South Korea. Uh, it bothers me very much, but I do know each one of them is doing their best to advance the science. Mm-hmm. So I would like to contribute with what I can do, it, and I would just... Uh, it, it's a long road. I mean literally I started this in 1997 yeah. and finally today I'm a very close to get it back to a clinical on that knee to get it back to the bedside. So yeah. it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah actually you know I did forget to ask you um, sort of the, a bit of a historical question about muscle derived stem cells, the cell population that you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have a colleague here in Pittsburgh who is credited with finding this cell population um, when, when did Dr. Heward, Johnny Heward, when was that discovery? When did he find these muscle-derived stem cells?
2: Yeah, so I arrived in Pittsburgh 1997, and Johnny was just starting off his own lab here. He finished his Ph.D. postdoctoral training. His interest was in muscular dystrophy. Yeah. So he wants to find muscle cells to save the life of kids with muscular dystrophy. I was a urologist. And I met Peter Johnson, who's just really a pioneer in various areas of regenerative medicine. I talked to Peter saying, you know, this is what I want to do. And he said, you know, there's this great rising young star that's looking at muscle cells and you guys should hooked up. And we did and we became a very good partnership. We first got started with our work through actually the Pittsburgh Tissue Engineering Initiative, mm-hmm. went on to get NIH funding. And we initially just took the cell Johnny was working on to help muscular dystrophy and then was able to, by surprising to the both of us, finding that there's really cells that's as good as stem cell and other tissue, able to technology transfer that, form a company, and continue on with the the basic research that Johnny's doing, the translational research that I'm doing, but also forming a company, thereby it could go into a clinical trial in Canada, and if this is successful, it can be be a product that doctors from all over the world can use.
0: I love that story of sort of all of you being in the right place at the right time, the right amount of inquiry, and the right amount of success, and the right amount of tenacity, and then Peter Johnson acting as sort of a dating service to <laughs> bring you guys together and P Harmony Peter
2: Johnson. That's
0: right. That's right. P Harmony. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a really bad. Part. Okay. Um, well, we'll look forward to hearing more about the Pittsburgh trial. And to our listeners, um, we'll link to your lab site or or something informative from ours. And um, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking me.
1: Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Chancellor and his work, see the links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com.
0: And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine, coming to you two weeks from now.
1: If you have ideas for future podcasts, or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians, and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice.
0: We do hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Please join us again in a few weeks. We're joined today by Dr. Michael Chancellor. He's a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's got a pretty interesting approach to an age-old problem. So Dr. Chancellor, can you describe uh, the problem that you're working to solve?
2: Yeah, I'm a urologist, and I deal with PP problems. And through the years, I see a lot of women and men that can't control their urine. I'll treat them with medicine, exercise, you know, the classic Kegel exercise, and surgery. And over the last 10, 15 years, I realized a lot of the stuff we do can only control the problem and the thought of, if you have a weak sphincter, which is a muscle and you leak urine, can we actually go ahead and rebuild your valve, your muscle sphincter, and therefore cure the problem? That's something I was thinking of in the early 90s and pursued that dream and sort of taking a clinical problem, I'm a physician scientists, I'm not as smart as the PhDs, but to be, it's sort of a neat perspective to see a problem that your patient tell you, you realize the current treatment only goes so far, and I'm at need, finding the opportunity to work with world-class scientists, and then to take something that's benchtop research, high tech, such as tissue engineering, stem cell, and then to apply that and fix a problem that affects millions and millions of Americans.
0: So tell me more, let's get a little more in depth there. Um, the urethra is, a ureter, I'm not sure I have my terms right, mm-hmm. is a muscle, is it not? Or at least the, the, end, the opening of it is controlled by muscle. So is that the part you're working to fix, and how are you doing that?
2: Exactly. So the lower urinary tract, it has two parts. One is the reservoir, our bladder. It holds our urine. None of us wants to like, notice, feel, like, feel our bladder, except when we have to go. And six, eight times a day, we'd go to the bathroom. So our bladder holds the urine, and below the bladder, much like a valve in your bathroom, there is a a natural valve. The valve we have is made of muscle, which is around the urethra, which is the tube whereby the urine comes out.